0: You can't do what you want to do unless you do what I want you to do. I mean, Don Lemon was talking about that openly on CNN. Yeah. Don't have a vaccine, can't go to a supermarket. Don't have a vaccine, can't go to work. Like, it's so strange that people want to say things like that. Like, that's the thing that blows me away. Why do you? Why do people want to? Because uh, they're dumb. They're dumb. Right? They're dumb. They don't <laughs> understand history. They don't understand <laughs> right. human beings. They don't understand yeah. human nature. They don't understand the history of. Every single country that's ever existed, mm-hmm. other than the United States, up until 1776, every right. country that has ever existed was run by dictators. Right. All of them. This is the first one where you had elected officials. This is the first experiment in self-government that actually worked, and it created the greatest superpower the world's ever known. It created the greatest cultural machine, the greatest machine of art and creativity and innovation right here. And how did it do that? It did it through freedom. Because when you give people freedom, you let people do whatever the f- they want to do, they actually find ways to succeed and grow and thrive. But as soon as you put the boots to them, as soon as you tell them, you have to do this or you can't do that. You have to listen to me. Now you have a mini dictator. You right. have one step away from a king. You have a one step closer.
1: You're moving one step closer to dictatorship. That's what the f*** is happening. Western Civilization. It's been around for a while, but suddenly everybody is talking about it. Some are anxious to save it. Others are happy to see it go. But what exactly is Western civilization? Is it the great cathedrals of Europe or the Nazi concentration camps? Is it the freedoms secured in the U.S. Constitution or chattel slavery? Life-saving medicines or poison gas? The left likes to focus on the bad, genocide, slavery, environmental destruction. But those have been present in every civilization from time immemorial. The positives are unique to the West. Religious tolerance, abolition of slavery, universal human rights, the development of the scientific method, these are accomplishments of a scope and scale that only the West can claim. These aren't the only achievements that make the West special and uniquely successful. As Western thought evolved, it secured the rights of women and minorities, lifted billions of people out of poverty, and invented most of the modern world. Progress hasn't been a straight line, of course, but the arc of history is clear. The obvious proof is that the world is overwhelmingly Western, and, with few exceptions, those parts of the world that aren't aspire to be. Why? Why has Western civilization been so successful? There are many reasons, but the best place to start is with the teachings and philosophies that emerged from two ancient cities, Jerusalem and Athens. Jerusalem represents religious revelation as manifested in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the beliefs that a good God created an ordered universe and that this God demands moral behavior from His paramount creation, man. The other city, Athens, represents reason and logic as expressed by the great Greek thinkers, Plato and Aristotle and many others. These two ways of thinking, revelation and reason, live in constant tension. Judeo-Christian religion posits that there are certain fundamental truths handed down to us by a transcendent being. We didn't invent these truths. We received them from God. The rules He lays down for us are vital for building a functioning, moral civilization and for leading a happy life. Greek thinking posits that we only know truth by what we observe, test, and measure. It is not faith but fact that drives our understanding and exploration of the universe. Western civilization, and only Western civilization, has found a way to balance both religious belief and human reason. Here's how the balance works. The Judeo-Christian tradition teaches that God created an ordered universe and that we have an obligation to try to make the world better. This offers us purpose and suggests that history moves forward. Most pagan religions taught the opposite, that the universe is illogical and random, and that history is cyclical. History just endlessly repeats itself, in which case, Why bother to innovate or create anything new? Second, Judeo-Christian tradition teaches that every human is created in the image of God. That is, each individual's life is infinitely valuable. This seems self-evident to us now, but only because we have lived with this belief for so long. The far more natural belief is that the strong should subjugate the weak, which is precisely what people did in nearly every society in all of history. Only by recognizing the divine in others did we ever move beyond this amoral thinking toward the concern for human rights, democracy, and free enterprise that characterized the West. But Judeo-Christian religion alone didn't build our modern civilization. We also required Greek reason to teach us objective observation that man has the capacity to search beyond revelation for answers. Greek reason brought us the notion of the natural law, the idea that we could discover the natural purpose, the telos, of everything in creation by looking to its character. Human beings were created with the unique capacity to reason, therefore, our telos was to reason. By investing reason with so much power, Greek thought became integral to the Western mission. Nowhere is this more perfectly expressed than in the American Revolution, in which the Founding Fathers took the best of the European Enlightenment, with its roots in Greek thought, and the best of Judeo-Christian practice, with its roots in the Bible, and melded them into a whole new political philosophy. Without Judeo-Christian values, we fall into scientific materialism, the belief that physical matter is the only reality, and therefore, also fall into nihilism, the belief that life has no meaning, that we are merely stellar dust in a cold universe. Without Greek reason, we fall into fanaticism, the belief that fundamentalist adherence to unprovable principles represents the only path toward meaning. The Soviet Union, Communist China, and other socialist tyrannies rejected faith, and murdered 100 million people in the 20th century. Much of the modern Muslim world has embraced faith, but rejected reason. It's noteworthy that when the Muslim world did embrace Greek reason from the 8th to the 14th centuries, it was a leading center for scientific advancement. So again, we need both Jerusalem and Athens, revelation and reason. And yet many want to reject both. These people call themselves progressives. Ironically, they want to take us backwards, to a time when man was governed neither by reason nor faith, but by feeling, and therefore back to a time of moral chaos and disorder, of feeling over fact. It would be a fatal mistake to follow the progressives. Stick with Athens and Jerusalem. I'm Ben Shapiro, editor of The Daily Wire and author of The Right Side of History for Prager University.
2: The story of money is part of the long history of civilization. It has been recorded on slabs and stones, on walls and monuments, in tombs, in Bibles and on manuscripts. The mysterious history of money is a legacy inspired by progress and industry, capitalism and freedom, wealth and civilization. It has also been inspired by theft and death, by totalitarianism and government demands, by weakness and government force. So how does a civilized and free nation conduct its monetary policy? First, a little history. Before Benjamin Franklin was considered by King George III to be a traitorous rebel, he was first a diplomat sent to the British king to engage in negotiations aimed at avoiding the pending American Revolution. At a dinner party one night in London, Franklin was asked to give a small talk about the American colonies across the ocean. Thinking about what would impact the British the most, Franklin told them, well, You can leave your ship with just your baggage, walk beyond the furthest homestead, and become an immediate landowner. His dinner companions couldn't believe him. You mean they asked you don't need the permission of the government or a loan from the government's bank to own property in the colonies across the sea? When they finally quieted down, Franklin told them a shocking truth. It's quite simple. We have created our own currency. Who were these colonists, colonists to create their own currency? How could a currency possibly sustain prosperity without a central bank to control it? Who were these colonists to own property without the government's approval or the involvement of the government's bank? The British Parliament almost immediately outlawed colonial scrip. The scrip were printed demand notes that represented gold stored in banks and homes. They weren't the worthless Federal Reserve notes that we have today. They were real money created by merchants and bankers and the colonial governments. Franklin brought the unhappy news with him back to Philadelphia. Later, he would be known to say, you know, we would gladly have borne the little tax on tea and other matters had it not been they they took from us our money, which when they took it created great unemployment and dissatisfaction within a year. The poor houses were filled. The hungry and the homeless walked the streets everywhere. While the phrase taxation without representation is tyranny may have been the colonists' battle cry, as much suffering was visited upon the colonists by the Bank of England as was done by the King of England. So you see, one of the founders of the United States of America had no difficulty whatsoever identifying the root cause of misery in the colonies central banks controlling money but americans today know precious little about money and how it is used against us you hear me speak often on freedom watch about debt and taxes about gold and the federal reserve here's a little economics 101 the topics dealing with issues of taxing and spending are what's known as fiscal policy and the topics dealing with issues of inflation, the Fed, and the creation of money itself are what's known as monetary policy. Monetary policy is about how money is created, and fiscal, to policy, fiscal policy is where it's destroyed by the government. It's not enough that Congress and the government destroy the fruits of our labors and consume them with wasteful spending and thieving taxation. But the manner in which money is created by the Federal Reserve out of thin air, with no gold or anything of value to back it, is abhorrent, immoral, unconstitutional, and quite simply, un-American. If you or I printed cash in our basements and used it in voluntary transactions, we'd go to jail. The Constitution says that only Congress can coin money and set its value. So how did this private bank get to print our money? The government gets its powers from the consent of the governed. We didn't give that power to a private bank. In America today, we have a private central bank with the monopoly power of printing money. It is an unelected, secretive and dangerous institution that manipulates the economy by destroying the purchasing power of those who work and save and transferring it to those who kill and steal, tax and destroy. What is it? You know, it's the Federal Reserve. Twice before, we had national banks that were abolished by Congress. But the creature from Jekyll Island, that's the place off the coast of Georgia where the Federal Reserve was hatched, lives on today. Risen from the grave and now intent on devaluing our future and keeping Americans in the dark about the truth of where their money comes from. Don't let any fancy talk from the New York Times or the liberal media or Treasury Secretary Geithner fool you. The federal government—that would be you and me, the American taxpayer—borrows money from the Federal Reserve and must repay that money with interest. Before the Fed, before the Fed existed, the Treasury directly circulated currency backed by gold. Since the Fed, we pay interest just to have the money. We effectively rent our money from the Federal Reserve. And our money is just worthless pieces of paper. Does it make any sense that if we can't pay our bills with the money we have already rented from the Fed, that we should rent more money from the Fed? Of course not. But that's just what the president wants to do by raising the debt ceiling. If the American people ever wish to regain control of the government, we need to understand the monetary system and we need to alter materially the banking system so as to replace our debt Based money out of thin air economy with an economy based on production, on savings, on capitalism, and on competition. Only then can true prosperity return. Boy, if we ever get to audit the Fed and its money lenders, the demand to end the Fed will become overwhelming.
3: Joining us today is Thomas Sowell, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He is the author of many books that have cast a critical eye at American society, including Inside American Education and Race and Culture. His latest book, The Vision of the Anointed, Self-Congratulation as the Basis for Social Policy, has been called a broadside against the received wisdom of America's elite liberal intelligentsia. Tom Sowell, uh, why don't you start out and tell us what the vision of the anointed is about? What is it? Well, it's, one, a
4: vision that the problems that we see in the world are due to the fact that other people are just not as bright or as compassionate as they are, uh, and that there are all these solutions out there waiting to be discovered, and that they have them. And that these solutions that are being imposed upon the rest of us uh, by by the power of government through taxation or in other ways, uh, and what's really crucial about it is that their passion is so so much greater than the passion on the other side, largely because what they have involved is more.
3: Who is they? Oh, the
4: the the the, the, um, the media elite, the uh, academic elite, political elites, and I and the reason we can talk about their vision, even though they obviously vary in their opinions. Uh, Is that the basic set of underlying assumptions about the world are very similar. Um, And because these assumptions are the prevailing assumptions, uh, the need to find evidence for them or to offer proof is much less. If something something happens, they'll explain it in a way which will fit that vision. For example, uh, when they find that um, prenatal care is less among blacks than among whites and that um, infant mortality rates are higher, uh, they immediately assume this is because of society's neglect, and therefore, if only the government will step in and provide more prenatal care, that, that problem solves itself. But in reality, uh, other groups have even less prenatal care than blacks and don't have any more mortality than whites. Uh, but they don't ever get to that second stage because once they've seen something that fits their
3: conception of how the world works, that's sort of the end of it. Uh, let, let me go back to that idea of who the they is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in, in your cosmology, are these liberals? Is that what they are? Yes. Uh, you the New York Times, the Washington Post,
4: Harvard, Stanford, um, you know, the Edward Kennedys, the all the usual suspects.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
4: let me. Uh, but it's more than those particular people because no, this I'm mindset goes back at least two hundred years. Who does it start with? What is? I don't know where it starts, but you you can find it in the 18th century. If you read uh, William Godwin's Inquiry Concerning Political Justice in 1793, you have the whole vision laid out, just as it was in the 1960s. But the 1960s were a crucial point because that's when this vision
3: became dominant. This sort of arrogant vision that we know best. Oh yes. And and don't even have to subject it to normal forms of proof. Oh, absolutely not.
4: Absolutely not. Now, I think that when people say things like uh, "more American wives are battered on Super Bowl Sunday," you see than any other time of the year, uh, and and there's not a speck of evidence for that. Uh, that is calculated because but they're, they're, you can, they're can, oh, I mean, you, there, there, there is there is no data that can even be misinterpreted that way. In other words, because there is no data. Period. And so, yes, but I think that 99% of the people who believe it are not calculating. Mm-hmm. So and I think and I think one of the reasons that it flies without without even being challenged for evidence mm-hmm. is that there is a certain vision of how the world is, and in that world, men are oppressing women, and therefore, when you say something like this, it fits the vision, and that's the end of it. There's no there's no d- demand for
3: evidence. You, you have in, in your book sort of a a series toward the beginning of how the actual process works of forming one of these ideas and yes. selling it and rejecting the proof. Maybe you could just kind of yes. march it through there's this as a, a four as a model of it. All right. There's
4: a four-stage uh, uh, um, pattern. And in the first stage is what, what's what I call the crisis. And so we're hyped to believe that something is a terrible crisis for which something must be done. Uh, and uh, what, was, what was fascinating to me in doing the research for the book is that very often the thing that's said to be in crisis has often been getting better for years on end. But that gets ignored. In the second stage, for, is, for example, infant mortality. To to
3: use one of the well, uh, we're I'm, I'm I'm before. I'm thinking
4: about um, um, preg- uh, teenage pregnancy and venereal disease. Uh, those things were getting better. Teenage pregnancy was going down for more than a decade before sex education was introduced. Venereal disease, uh, syphilis in 1960s uh, was only ha- had only half the incidence that it had in 1950. So all these things are going down. Yet yet we're said to need sex education to deal with this crisis. Which is then manufactured. And again, this is where the calculated part comes in. Now, ninety-nine percent of the people who hear this don't un- don't know that, mm-hmm. and but, but the reason they accept it is because they also share the same vision, and because this is consonant with that vision, they don't have
3: to ask for evidence. All right. So, what's, what's stage two? Th- that stage two is the, the, pi- the first one is there's a crisis. Yes. They establish a crisis, usually an artificial one.
4: Yes. Okay. Uh, then, then then stage two is the solution. You have a solution for this crisis. In this case, you have sex education in the schools. And then uh, at that point, you say, if if we do this, this will lead to beneficial result A. The critics say, no, it will lead to detrimental result Z. Stage three, you put it in the results, you put it in and directly you find detrimental result Z, namely venereal disease and teenage pregnancy take off into the stratosphere. And then stage four is the fascinating part in which they simply say, no, that doesn't prove that this was a bad policy because there are many factors. There's complexity. It's simplistic to blame it on this. But they run through this routine on so many different things, including crime. Similarly, they said, you know, in 1960, Judge Bazelon said we just desperately need to have some kind of change in the criminal justice system. Now, in 1960, uh, there were fewer murders than there had been in 1950, 1940, or 1930. Uh, But again, that was completely ignored. And so now we have the revolution in the criminal justice system. People say, no, if you have to put these new things in, there'll be more crime than before. They put them in. Almost instantly, the declining crime rate turns around and heads up again. And they say, no, it's simplistic to blame this on on, on this, there are the root causes and the neglect of society and all the rest of it.
3: So it's heads I win, tails you lose. Why would a group of of liberal intellectuals or politicians or media stars or whatever, why would they sit around and decide to uh, uh, dismember or dilute the criminal justice system if they thought in advance? that it would raise the amount of criminality oh they, they didn't they didn't think that but the point is so they just thought wrongly that it would be that it would help yes but, but it would also give them an enormously larger
4: role than they had before i mean a judge who just sits there and applies the laws that have been passed by the legislature has a very minor role but if he takes the expansive uh, judicial activist role then of course he's on the leading edge and he can look for the hosannas and all the rest
3: of it from the side H- how does this play out in the realm of something else you have written about, which is uh, affirmative action. Uh, exactly. How does that process — what's the one, two, three, four on that? I I, I haven't haven't worked it out uh, uh, like that. But uh, certainly
4: there is no interest whatever in finding out empirically whether things have been made better or worse for minorities as a result of of this program. Uh, And in fact, if you bring them up evidence, they'll say, ah, but things would have been even worse had we not done this. Similarly with the war on poverty, you you can show how dependency on government was going down, poverty was going down before this program was ever put in. And within a few years, dependence on government was going up. And after a few more, more years, the absolute number of people in poverty was going up. This was sold to the country, not on the grounds that if you transferred money from A to B, that B would have more money. That was not the argument. The argument was that dependency would be reduced that you would, quote, invest in people, as Bill Clinton is now saying now that people have forgotten what was said in the 60s. This will then — you give them job training and all those kinds of things, parenting skills, the whole bit. And this will then be an investment that will pay off in the future because there will be fewer people dependent upon the government than there were before. And I go through a great number of people from John F. Kennedy to Lyndon Johnson, the New York Times — again, all the usual
3: suspects said all these things. Lyndon Johnson was not a usual suspect, Tom.
4: Well, I, he, 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 was, he was the primary suspect. All right. Uh, but the fact is that was never tested. And when, you, when there were all these wonderful retrospectives held down in Texas mm-hmm. and other places about this, the first order of business is to evade the criterion that they themselves set up when they set this out. And so no matter what happens, if the if it's if it's a failure by the original criterion, then we just find another criterion by which it will be a success.
3: Well, l- l- let's just examine that for a minute. I, I have um, a friend of mine from those old White House days was listening to again Gingrich shortly after the, we had this great Republican Revolution in in 1994. Uh, in uh, a great meaning huge, not necessarily wonderful. We shall see about that. And uh, he he kept hearing. Newt Gingrich used the word opportunity — this conservative opportunity society, we have to provide opportunity. And, and I was talking to him, he said, you know, Gingrich uses that word opportunity almost as much as Johnson did, which mm-hmm. is what you're saying, that that was the rhetoric. Uh, it was called the uh, equal uh, — uh, OEO was the Office of Economic Opportunity. Yes. That's what it was. Now, so if, if liberals were talking about opportunity, and now conservatives are talking about opportunity, and I'm sure you're for opportunity. All God's children got opportunity. All God's children got opportunity. So, so, what is your your problem that that liberals said we ought to create programs for opportunity? And in point of fact, I mean, uh, just to I won't say play devil's advocate because I mean a, a lot of the things that that came out of the Great Society, uh, I mean building all those junior colleges and community colleges. Oh, I would disagree with I think that was a tragedy of the first that magnitude. That was a tragedy. Too. Yes. Why is that a tragedy? You have millions of people who
4: have absolutely no desire for an education, using up billions of dollars of the taxpayers' money. And not only not getting an education themselves, making it more difficult. To give an education to
3: those people who came to college with an idea of getting one. Now, you say they have no desire for education. I mean, nobody is herding them into these community colleges and into the junior colleges and into the state universities. I mean, they have a desire, obviously. No,
4: they do not, obviously, because lots of things go on in those places that are not education. I mean, where else can you find so many uh, young people of the uh, same age and opposite sex in one place? Uh, a, a nice convenient place to be. But anyone who is taught in, these, in, in, in a lot of these places, this, this ferocious desire for education as such is not terribly visible. And I taught at places where we've gotten, you know, the upper 10, 15 percent of students, I mean, UCLA and whatnot. Uh, and uh, neither, neither I nor my colleagues found this great desire for education as such. They wanted to be in ivy-covered buildings for four years in order to get more money when they graduate and have a good time while they're there.
3: So you think the uh, the great American ideal, which has really been shared by both parties and both ideologies over recent decades, to allow more people to get into higher education, that that is a bankrupt idea? Oh, to allow is one thing, but to subsidize
4: people at enormous cost. With no real sign uh, that this is producing what which, what, what we intend well, to mean, produce. I mean, you
3: say when you say subsidized. I mean, you talk about a junior college or community college. I guess that's subsidized. It, 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 it's 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 below cost uh, sure. uh, 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 tuition, but it does allow uh, kids uh, who who do not have the money to go to Amherst or wherever uh, to, to to start a college people, education. I mean, it, it people did we that before the Great Society. I did it before the Great Society. My whole generation did it before the Great Society. You are saying that the, uh, the great humanitarian political impulses of the 1960s have been almost without exception bad.
4: Well, there have been some, some good ones, but I'm saying that the assumption that uh, on the education front, I mean, I, I would defy you to find a large number of people who've actually taught these students who really think that they're out there thirsting for knowledge.
3: Suppose they are thirsting for a better job and we've set up a society where you have to be credentialed with a certain amount oh, of but college, but so can't, aren't they able to get a better job no, b- because of No. This is a fallacy of composition. Uh, you know,
4: if, if one person stands up in the stadium, he sees the game better, but if they all stand up, they don't all see the game better. Uh, as long as, you know, if you, have, if you have a degree and the other guy doesn't, then you get ahead of him in the employment line. But we're not going to all get ahead of each other on the employment line by all getting degrees.
3: So this whole idea that uh, I guess, again, both uh, liberals and conservatives are saying is that at this particular moment, 1995, uh, we have to get more people into the education system because that's the way to compete. And we look at the data and we see that uh, the people with more education are earning more money than ever before relative to the people with less education. That's all a fallacy of everybody standing up in the stadium. People people who
4: fly on the Concorde, kids who've flown on the Concorde, undoubtedly will make more money than people who — kids who've only gone on buses. That does not mean if we put a lot of people on the Concorde, we're going to raise the national income.
5: The Vision of the Anointed. Now, that's,
4: a, that's an interesting title. Who are the anointed? They're the elite in the media, in, the po- in politics, uh, all of those who think that third parties ought to be making people's decisions for them. The subtitle is self-congratulation as a basis for social policy. In other words, people who think that everything that's wrong with the, co- the country is due to the fact that other people are just not as smart as they are. And if only they could, you know, or people like them could take over and make our decisions, we'd be so much better off.
5: But in, the early, in early America, didn't this sort of educated class make the decisions for everybody?
4: As far as governmental decisions? Yeah. But the government itself didn't make uh, the decisions for everyone. Uh-huh. Now, uh, you know, you, you can't decide where your kid's going to school. You can't decide whether or not they can move a, a halfway house for drug for drug users next door to you or whatnot. It's out but, of
5: your control. The government that, decides that That's right. Stuff. The
4: government decides too many things. They decide also how your children are to be raised. Uh, you may have an idea about how, at what age children should be introduced to sex and in what manner, with what kind of moral commitment. To you someone. mean as a parent? you As a this- parent, a parent, yes. Uh, the schools have taken that over. By the time you even think about it, they've already had years, you know, of showing... They're passing out condoms to these kids. Even passing out condoms you- is not, not even the half of it. Uh, they're, they're showing uh, motion pictures of naked couples engaging in sex, both homosexual and heterosexual, in the seventh grade. And if you complain about it, that's, that's considered to be censorship. You, don't, you, you can't
5: pull your kid out of school and say they don't have to put up with this stuff? I guess you could, no. but you'd be... Uh, well, if
4: you have a private school to put him in, but you have compulsory attendance laws, and if you don't have the money for private schools, then you're stuck. Where did this country get off the track and decide that the federal government should make most of our decisions? Well, it started to some extent in the New Deal, but I think the 1960s is sort of the golden age, if you want to put it that way, of this whole mindset. And that's what the book's about. It's about a mindset. It's not about a series of policies. But of showing how, in policy after policy, those who think a certain way will uh, try to take over other people's
5: decisions. How do you characterize the liberal philosophy today from the conservative
4: philosophy? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I guess the main thing about the liberals again is that they think a program will do it. If there's something that they don't like in the society, you have set up a program and that will solve the problem. Uh, I think one of the things that one of the words they use a lot is solutions, and I argue here and elsewhere that there are there are no solutions there are just trade-offs. So, for example, when uh, Ralph Nader launched his attack against the Corvair many years ago, he said it's an unsafe car, and it does the, has these safety problems and those safety problems. And in some respects, the, he was correct, not all. Uh, but the fact is, there were other things that a Corvair would do that made it safer than other cars. Uh, and on net balance, it was as safe as the rest of them.
5: Are you saying there are no solutions to our problems as Americans? There are no solutions to
4: anybody's problems. There are trade-offs. You know. Um, Safety is a classic example. Uh, every, every, every year, so many hundreds of thousands of people are uh, vaccinated against uh, measles, smallpox, those kinds of things. Now, this saves and several hundred lives, that it's estimated. It also causes brain damage to about 30 kids a year. Now, there are no solutions in that. There are just trade-offs.
5: What about but- crime? Take crime as an issue. Can we solve the crime issue, or fundamentally
4: solve it, so it's reduced. Well, then that, that's just that, that's that's a, that's a trade-off. You know, you know, you don't, you don't solve it. There will always be crime, there always has been, uh, but you want to keep it down to some level that's not this astronomical thing we have today. Uh, for example, the people, the, the liberals right now, are saying, you know, crime is eased off uh, in New York, and that's true. Uh, there were. There were six times as much crime in New York a few years ago as there was in 1960. Now it's down to five times as much crime as there was in 1960. Now that's not what I regard as a great, as a great, as a great trend unless it continues a lot, a lot, a lot more strong. The liberals
5: think we need more education and we need to help people in the inner city more to cut down crime there. Uh, conservatives would say we have to be tougher on crime. Is either of them correct?
4: Oh, I, I, no, see, you see, the conservative view is really not a, not a solution. It's a, it's a trade off. It says, yes, it would be wonderful if we could do all these things to prevent crime in the first place. We just don't happen to be that smart. And so what we do, we put people behind bars who commit violent crimes. Now, a few years ago in East Palo Alto, which is not far from Stanford University, a minority community, low income, they had the doubtful distinction of being the murder capital of the United States in proportion to their population. Uh, the next year, murder and all sorts of other violent crimes dropped tremendous amount, 30, 40, 50 percent, in one year. Now that wasn't because they discovered the root causes of crime or because they worked out everything that was wonderful. They launched a campaign that put a lot of the bad guys behind bars. And when they were behind bars, they didn't commit as many crimes. That <laughs> makes sense to me. Uh, and, and the thing that this is you know, even in a high crime area, the great majority of the people are not criminals. And so, if you can just put your hands on those people who are raising all all the hell in the community and take them out of circulation, the crime rate drops.
5: People say there's undue uh, emphasis on African Americans for committing crimes. Is that true? Uh, Ed I Koch know, I wrote know. an all column here that. The population is 25 percent African American in New York. 62 percent of the crimes are committed by African Americans. Is that a? And he says I haven't a, I haven't
4: checked his figures, but but yeah, throughout the world, this is this is this is not not unusual. Throughout the world, people are disproportionately represented in all kinds of different things. And it's true, obviously, in basketball. It's true in all kinds of other things. Uh, the main thing is not is not to keep people out of jail because they are one race or another because when you do that the people who are going to suffer the most will be the black community
5: Where are you on affirmative action? Against. Why?
4: Well you can only do one of two things. You can either just uh, judge people individually or you can judge them by groups. This whole notion that you're going to come out with a compromise, I would defy anybody to come out with a compromise on that. You're going to do one of those two things. Now you can pretend to be doing other things but that's all you're going to do it. Those are the only two choices you really have in the end. Uh, Again, the people who are the anointed think of this as a symbolic issue, and they want to be on the side of the angels. They don't ask, what are the consequences? Now I've studied affirmative action programs around the world. One of the consequences is that those people who are more fortunate in the group that has the preferences, those people who take the lion's share of the preferences. Very often those at the other end of the scale, the poorer people, uh, actually fall further behind. That's true of shear, it's true of Malays in Malaysia, it's true of various groups in India. And there are reasons for that. Uh, you know, you, you can say you must have certain proportions. Nothing is easier than for an employer who, would, who might otherwise locate, let's say, in the Bronx, to locate out in Provo, Utah, where he will be not near any black people, and therefore he will never have lawsuits, and the jobs will be in Provo, and people will wonder, why don't people you know, uh, here have more jobs? Uh, it never seems to occur to, to liberals that other people are not blocks of wood that when you set up certain incentives they will react to them in certain ways and when they do that the result may be the opposite of what you set out to do
5: how did the anointed
4: refer to people they don't agree with all sorts of ways but i think the main thing is they believe that uh, you're not merely in error but in sin whereas they can't believe that you're just mistaken uh... you must have uh... you must have sold out you must have uh, must be something warped about you you guys are for the rich mm. You
5: guys only care about the rich guys. Uh, answer that. How do, you, how do you respond? Liberal says
4: conservatives only care about rich people. Well, one of the things I go into in the book is that the whole notion of rich is ridiculous. Uh, that most Americans don't stay in the same income bracket, even for one decade. So the same guy who is, quote, rich now was 20 years ago, probably in the bottom 20%. I mean, I was on a cruise recently, a luxury cruise, and the guy said, you know, if somebody had told me when I was growing up that I would end up on a cruise like this, I would have said, get real, man. You know, that uh, very few people are in that same income bracket the whole time. Right. The genuinely rich and the genuinely poor, I would estimate to be no more than 3% of the American people. Really? Put together. Really? Yes. Genuinely poor. Now, they, I'm seeing numbers
5: like... When they were talking about healthcare, they said, uh, what, 30, 20, wait, 30 million people couldn't afford it or something? Uh,
4: several million of those were making more than $50,000 a year. So it's not, <laughs> see, this is one of the things the anointed do. They never believe that people make choices. There are people who have the money they prefer to put that money into a BMW rather than have. health A lot healthcare. of young people didn't want health care. They, they were betting on their health. Absolutely. And yeah. then this allows them to buy more stuff they want to buy. So it's not a question that they couldn't afford it. It's a question they don't choose to spend the money.
5: What about uh, mean-spirited? Conservatives are mean-spirited. They're, they're
4: bigots. They don't like people. Well, you know, one of the things I, I tell people, people say, you know, you're, you're, you're a very uh, tough person. I'm not tough. Life is tough. I'm merely trying to acquaint you with, the, with
5: those facts. You know, back in the 60s, Lyndon Johnson announced a war on poverty. Mm. Am I wrong? But there are more poor people. I mean, in other words, today than there were then, yeah. Yeah, there are more poor people. Yes. I mean, this was a hell of a war. We lost it apparently because for the last thirty years we've been dumping money into these poverty programs.
4: Oh, absolutely. Is Where's it, the money go? Oh, it, it it supports a whole industry of people who uh run those programs who talk about those programs, research those programs, bureaucrats, and so on. doesn't help poor people. No. Uh, the tragedy you see is that the anointed really want to make symbolic statements. And running these programs makes those symbolic statements. They don't really care if in the, in the wake of affirmative action, for example, companies start locating away from minority communities so they don't even get involved in, in legal action. They don't care about that. They've made their statement on the side of the angels, and that's what's important. Have you ever debated Jesse Jackson? No, I haven't. Is
5: that because? Would you like to, or would he not want to do that? I have no idea. I have no idea.
4: Uh, You'd be willing to, I assume. Oh, maybe. I don't. I don't know. Uh, You think that's too much showbiz? It is. Uh, You know, there are people who go do this, and I'm doing less and less of it. I tell them the story of an an African uh, boxing champion who fought an Irishman in St. Patrick's Day, Day in Dublin. And he lost his title on what the sports writers called a questionable decision. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so you have to know what forum you're talking about. Right. I, was, I, was, I saw Shelby Steele on with him, and I said, you know, if Jesse Jackson and Shelby Steele each had to present a two-hour lecture to an audience with an average IQ of 120, Shelby would wipe him out. But if they had five seconds each on Donahue, it would be Jesse Jackson all the way. Right. So everything depends upon the forum. Uh,
5: is Jesse Jackson good for African Americans no. or not? He's, He's not. good for
4: himself. Good for himself. And that's true of most ethnic leaders and most groups in most countries and most periods periods of history. That what will make what will serve his interest is to keep people paranoid, dependent upon him, dependent upon government. What will serve their interest is typically just the opposite.
5: Whew. That's pretty interesting. So you're saying that the the leaders, whatever group, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Leader, wants the people to be poor and dependent on them as opposed to dependent on themselves.
4: Oh, absolutely. And I, I you see this in the greatest cynicism in the academic world where in many places uh, black uh, organizations on campus have a say on who gets admitted and they have turned down blacks with excellent credentials both as students and as faculty members uh, for that very reason. Who are the mascots of the anointed? You talk about the mascots of the anointed. they are people whom whom they choose to um, Back and whose rights are supposed to override other people's rights. The homeless are a classic example. Uh, I'm, I'm appalled when I see people out there in the street uh, giving money to the, to the home. I'm mean, able bodied men. Yeah. I think one of the classic pictures to me was in San Francisco. When there was this uh, able-bodied white man out in the street begging, and there's this black lady coming along there, uh, very modestly dressed like she didn't have, but she's stopping to open her purse to give him some money, you know. I thought, good heavens, have we really come to this? And we've been brainwashed by the anointed into thinking this is what we ought to do. What do you say to guys who bum money off of you? Not all of it can be repeated on on, on the air, (laughs) but the fact is they don't get any money. They don't? And, I, and people who complain now about all these people begging in the street, is a simple answer. Don't give them money, and they won't be in the street. When you wrote
5: this, what were you trying to accomplish with the book, and did you do it? Did, were you nailing liberals? For 30 years of social policy, what were you
4: trying to say? I was trying to reveal the thinking behind that, the kinds of assumptions, the kind of world that exists inside their mind, and therefore why those assumptions are so dangerous in the long run. It's not just the policies mission in, those, in that book. They but, think they're better than everybody else. Oh, absolutely. There's no question. Uh, and that's what makes them dangerous. Uh, even all the policies that are mentioned in there, 20 years from now, those policies may not be the policies we're concerned about. But that mindset will still be there. And what makes them tremendously dangerous is that facts that contradict what they believe are simply ignored or evaded.
5: Where does the press fall into this as the minority group? Are they
4: part of the Oh, United? absolutely. They're a major part of it because one of the reasons that people don't get many of the facts that go against what's believed is that the press doesn't choose to publicize those facts.
5: Give me an example of something the press might not cover or cover well.
4: Oh, a few years ago, there was a story about um, prenatal care among blacks, that black women get less prenatal care than white women. Infant mortality rate is higher among blacks. They immediately assume that one causes the other. Now, I, now I, one of the things I like to do is go back to the original source and find out what it said. I went back. On the very same page where it said that, it sh- the figure showed Mexican-Americans get even less prenatal care than blacks, and they have a lower infant mortality rate than whites. So infant mor- prenatal care and infant mortality rate have nothing to do with each other. If you break it down further, uh, black women who have only a high school education but who are married, their children have lower infant mortality rates than white women who have a college education who are unwed mothers. So it's not race, it's not income, it's not education, it's lifestyle. When you live a certain way, there are consequences to that. The media doesn't want to want to, want to accept that. Because if you say people's lifestyles have a lot to do with the outcome, then there's no room for the anointed.